Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Carl McCullman. Carl is a contemplative writer, storyteller, podcaster, spiritual director, and author of the recently released book, The New Big Book of Christian Mysticism, An Essential Guide to Contemplative Spirituality. You can get connected with Carl and his work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have Carl McCullman with me, and uh, Carl, you do a lot of really cool things in the world, including you just recently uh, released an incredible book called The Big Book of Christian Mysticism, The Essential Guide to Contemplative Spirituality. So, so excited to talk about Christian mysticism on this podcast. I don't know. I'm trying to think through all the... I mean, I've had over 150 episodes now. I have no idea if I've ever talked with somebody about Christian mysticism, but I'm very, very stoked to chat with you about it. So uh, with all of that said, uh, before we chat about the book, I want to hear from you. Who is Carl McCullman to Carl McCullman? (laughs) What a great question. I'm me. I'm a contemplative or an aspiring contemplative, I should say. I am, you know, uh, gosh, what can I say about myself? I'm a, I can give you the dog and pony show. You know, I'm a writer. <laughs> I'm a blogger. I'm a podcaster, yada, yada, yada. I, I have a, a spiritual direction ministry, you know, all, all that stuff. You know, you can get all that on my website. So maybe, you know, digging a little bit deeper. Um, I'm a vegan. But I'm a what mm-hmm. I call a slacker vegan because I do cheat some. So um, you what's, know, your, what's your what's your best go. like cheat? What or what's your favorite cheat food in that uh, when it comes to slacking? Oh, that's a great question. Um, pro- probably something involving sugar that really isn't good for me. Well, I'll give you a a, <laughs> a, a good example is Guinness. You know, Guinness oh. is not a vegetarian food. Really, they actually use fish in the production. So it's, it's, I mean, it's almost like cheese, you know, how cheese uses rennet. There's right. something about fish intestines. Or I, I don't know the details. You have to get, maybe that's a future uh, episode for you is to have somebody in to talk about the theology of Guinness, you know. But, well, it's not um, very, are, are you originally an Irishman? I feel like Irish people should, or I guess, is Guinness Scottish or Irish? I always forget. Guinness is Irish. It's from Dublin. McCullman is. Um, is, is, is McCullman not an Irish name? It's a it's a Scottish name, but oh. you know the the story is that the you know the the Gael, the Scots Gaels the Gaelic Scots probably all emigrated from Ireland. So if you go back far enough, all roads lead to Ireland. But um, right. you know, so but I've been I've been a faithful you know imbiber of the Guinness since I was in college. My freshman year in college, I think, was when I was initiated into the you know, the sacred order of Guinness. And um, right. and so when I learned that it was not technically a vegetarian food, it was a bit of an existential crisis. Right, um, right. And then, but I think, you know, that God used that to help me to understand that sometimes you have to bend the rules a little. And so, right. like I said, right. slacker vegan here. So, you know. What, what but, good is um, grace if you can't sin a little, right? 
<laughs> We're getting onto some theologically thin ice, but hey, why not? You know, it's, it's, you know, it's a Monday morning here. so That's great. Um, that's great. Well, let's chat about the book. Uh, before we okay. dive into the contents of the book, and I've got lots of questions about just kind of generally what you talk a little bit about, lots of questions around Christian mysticism. Uh, before we get into all of that, though, I want to know if there's something that you maybe learned historically or theologically as you wrote this book. Obviously, you're probably going into writing, uh, you know, when you go into writing a book about Christian mysticism, you probably have a good sense of what Christian mysticism is, the history, some of the theology that you might already know a little bit. But was there anything as you were maybe doing some research for this book where you're like, wow, did mm -hmm. not know about that before? Might need to put that in the book. Or maybe you didn't, but yeah. anything new that came up? That's a rich question. And one thing I should also point out is that this is the second edition of the book. So we had a first edition in 2010. Oh. That Then that cover is, is my, kind of a brown cover. Then the new edition, it's more colorful. And right. that just came out three or four months ago. So, that, so it's called The New Big Book of Christian Mysticism. And so the new book is 100 pages longer, uh, about 30,000 words longer. So it's, it's, it's not only revised, wow. it's revised and expanded. But to get back to your question, so I think the challenge for me is that I am a little bit of a perpetual student, and I'm continually just trying to, you know, just deepen my own knowledge base in terms of my reading, in terms of engaging with, you know, other teachers or, you know, whatever the, the situation may be. So it's just off the top of my head, I can't think of, of an oh, wow moment specifically while writing the book. But there certainly have been a number of oh, wow moments over the years. And so, well, I, I, I'll give you a recent one. And it's actually come since the book was finished. But just I'm a bear of little brain. That's what comes to mind. So that's what you're <laughs> going to get. The, um, there, you know, there's an amazing theologian, uh, mystic, mystical theologian named Howard Thurman. Many people mm -hmm. will be familiar with Howard Thurman. Many may not be familiar. Howard Thurman was uh, an African-American Baptist minister. And you don't often think of Black Baptist preachers as Christian mystics, but he certainly was. He studied mysticism under Rufus Jones, who is a very well-known Quaker kind of scholar of, of Christian mysticism. And then, of course, he made it his own and really brought the spirituality of the contemplative tradition into his experience as an African-American living in, you know, I mean, his grandmother was a slave, you know, being born into the long shadow of the trauma of American slavery and the realities of Jim Crow segregation. So, um, you know, so he and, and he lived from, I think, 1890. Nine, I believe, 98 or 99, very end of the 19th century, dies in 1981. So, um, you know, one, one of the regrets of my life is, you know, I could have met him had our paths crossed, and, you know, mm. but at any rate. Um, you know, it's like I know people who knew Merton, I know people who knew Thurman, and it's always amazing to be able to talk to somebody who had that mm -hmm. connection. But, but back to Thurman. Um, so, you know, his mysticism is a mysticism steeped in social justice and steeped mm -hmm. in the, the mandate to dismantle oppression. And, um, you know, and he, he's, he's writing about this in the 30s and 40s. I mean, something that I think, you know, a lot of, you know, kind of middle class white American Christians, it really didn't get on, on our radar until later because we were, we were, what's the word, kind of insulated by our right. social privilege. 
you know, whereas obviously somebody who doesn't have social privilege, they have a front row seat to the injustice and oppression that happens in our culture. So, 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 so Thurman is writing about things in the thirties and forties that maybe, you know, other people who have a more privileged life don't even start thinking about until generations later. In 1938, so Thurman is what midlife, you know, late thirties or so. I think he was a chaplain at um, Howard university. He gives a talk on mysticism and he basically says that, and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have the quote in front of me, but he's basically says, you know, while mystics are committed to community because Jesus taught community, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. You can't get away from community, but the mystic is not, I think he said, is no friend of the institution. Mm. He's saying this in the 30s. And, you know, and I'm reading this and I'm like, he just, he just predicted spiritual but not religious by only what? Mm. About 50 years, <laughs> you know? And, and that, you know, when we think about today, you know, so many, I mean, I'm, I'm a young boomer, you know, it's like each generation you know, from boomer to X to millennial to what, Y, Z, whatever, whatever, you know, it's every generation, more and more people are saying no thank you to the institution. Mm. And what, you know, what I saw Thurman say in that one little line from that one little talk he gave, what, 85 years ago, he was saying that disaffiliating from the institution can actually be a mystical act. Mm. That that can that can be, you know, led by a desire to move more deeply into the mystery of Christ. Mm. And so um, obviously there are lots of reasons why people disaffiliate from the institution. People disaffiliate because they're bored. They disaffiliate because they don't want to be told what to do. You know, they disaffiliate because they they're queer and they are sick and tired of being told they're bad people because they're queer you know many 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 different reasons why people disaffiliate but but you know but thurman points out this can actually be be an an outgrowth of a deep interior life and that Mm. so that was this kind of major aha moment for me and again certainly certainly tracked with some of my own experience yeah i i definitely want i I actually have a question around that uh the the church authority and its sort of interesting relationship with Christian mysticism throughout history. But before we <laughs> dive into all of that, 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 that'll be later on. So we'll bookmark that for now. But th- that's an incredible revelation that you have as you're, you know, again, doing some some kind of research for this book. Obviously, being a contemplative, I'm imagining you're probably a person that is maybe discovering more things about yourself as you go on in life, right? And so I would imagine doing some sort of project like uh, writing the new book, uh, the new big book of Christian mysticism, that you're finding more about yourself. You're not only just learning things about maybe Howard Thurman or other things uh, when you're writing a book like this. I'm sure you're also learning about yourself. So was there anything that came up while writing this book? Maybe it was from, however, was it 10 or so years ago when you uh, wrote the the original version, and then now obviously there's this new edition. But was there anything that came up in in the writing of this book that you were like, "Wow, didn't know this about myself before"? About myself, I think I'm going to answer in a broader sense rather than again trying to zero in on any one specific moment. Mm-hmm. But I think you know, and I'm really conscious of the, the name of this podcast, People's Theology, and and what I would argue to begin with is that I think we have a tendency, especially in the West and especially since the Reformation, to see spirituality and theology as separate. Mm. 
Mm. And it's like theology is of the head. Theology is academic. It's doctrinal. Um, you know, that kind of thing. It's philosophical. Mysticism is devotional. It's affective, you know, not effective, affective. It's of the heart. It's, um, you know, it's all about falling in love with God. It's about being the bride of Christ, you know, that kind of thing. So, so we, we've created these kind of parallel discourses. And Merton said, the separation of theology from spirituality is a disaster. And, I, and I, I would agree with him wholeheartedly. So the first thing I want to say is that I think mysticism at its best is theology. And theology mm. at its best is mystical. So I just, I just want to throw that in there. Now let's go back to your question. How did my kind of research into Christian mysticism impact my sense of self or my own, you know, my own interior faith life. Um, and I don't know that I could quantify that because I think mm. the, 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 my faith journey, uh, well, you know, just to give you kind of, again, the quick rundown, I was introduced to the, to the topic of mysticism in 1979, when it, when a friend of mine gave me Evelyn Underhill's book on mysticism, which was written in 1911. So even then, at that point, the book is already what um, almost 70 years old, but mm -hmm. still, it it was very fresh and it really spoke to me. And she does take a historical perspective, which is probably one of the reasons why I'm so interested in the history of mysticism. You know, quoting John of the Cross, Meister Eckhart, Teresa of Avila, Julian of Norwich. You know, it's just out the wazoo. You know, her book is just rich in terms of letting the mystic speak for themselves. And it just opened up a whole world for me because I, I kind of come out of, it's interesting because my parents were Lutheran. So I grew up in a very kind of, again, suburban, white, middle-class, post-World War II uh, Lutheran congregation. And then I had a kind of a spontaneous spiritual awakening when I was 16 years old, very much in a kind of an experiential encounter with what I called God that, you know, you can't really put a name on it. And my Lutheran pastor and the people who I hung out with in the Lutheran world were not equipped to, to, to deal with that. That was off the map. So I went looking for somebody who I could talk to and I found the charismatic renewal and became very much involved with charismatic Christianity. And, okay, let's get theological. And in the charismatic world, I discovered a very dualistic, angry, restrictive God who is just an implacable judge. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Jesus, who's doing everything he can to calm daddy down so he doesn't send us to hell. And the devil is everywhere trying to trick us into disobeying God so that he gets a score. I mean, it really is a pretty messed up theology, but that was the theology that, that I was given. So mm -hmm. here I am in my body. I have had this mind-blowing experience of God as infinite love, just pure, unadulterated compassion and care and regard, you know. And then I'm getting this theology, this story. I mean, you know, the word theology means talking about God, this story mm -hmm. of this punitive reward punishment dualistic model of the angry father figure. And it just, you know, there was no way to, to connect them. They, 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 my experience was so off the map of what I was being told. But these were people who also reported having experiences of God. So it was, it was a really, you know, it basically launched me on the journey of kind of learning to articulate my own theology and a journey that has 
I'm probably still on. I, I think I'll be on mm -hmm. until the day I die. So, so we're talking, you know, th this is the late seventies. Now we're in the early twenties, you know, 40, a 45 year long journey. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, in, in the spiritual direction world, we talk a lot about image of God that every human being, even atheists, even agnostics, every human being has an image of God. What is the image of God? It's the story they tell themselves about God. Mm. God is ultimately beyond, beyond our language. God is a mystery. Um, there's a quote you'll see online, and it gets attributed to Evelyn Underhill, but I've never been able to find it in her work. So I'm, I'm not sure if, it, if it's really hers or not. But this quote is, if God were small enough to comprehend, he would be too little to worship. Mm. And, um, and that is, I think, you know, again, whoever said that first, that there is, there's a lot of wisdom there. Now, that doesn't let us off the hook for the task of theology, that we still have an obligation to tell the best story we can mm -hmm. about the God who cannot be contained by any story. Mm. Um, and I think that the reality is, is that in, in the Christian tradition, we have 2,000 years of a lot of really bad stories and including the one that I encountered with my charismatic friends when I was in high school. And so, um, so what I think that for me, the journey of discovering mysticism, reading the mystics, reading about the mystics, trying to filter that through my own experience and then do my own writing, both as a blogger and as, a, as you know, having written some books, is this kind of lifelong journey of, how can I tell the best possible story about the one who can never be contained by any story? Mm. And so, you know, I think it, it, it makes, it makes all the difference because the story we tell ourselves about God will shape how we see other people will shape how we see the theology of sin and repentance. Um, we'll see how we understand worship, how we understand justice. You know, it just, it, it literally, your, your image of God impacts every aspect of your spiritual life. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, um, you know, so what, like when I do spiritual direction, both in terms of receiving spiritual direction, but also my own ministry as a spiritual director, so much of the bandwidth goes into knowing your image of God. Because frankly, I think a lot of us are given our images of God when we're very small children, or maybe when we're teenagers, and we carry that around with us for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one definition of an atheist is somebody whose image of God has stopped working and they've decided not to bother replacing it with a different image of God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, I, and, I, and I, I do not mean any judgment for that. You know, I think f for many, many people, making the commitment to be an atheist can be an act of incredible courage. Again, mm -hmm. especially when you consider what their family, you know, or social situation may be yeah. like. Yeah, I, I'm I'm an atheist to many gods as well. Uh, there are many yeah. gods that I don't believe yeah. exist. Yeah. You know, I, I I attended a talk a couple of years ago, and I, and I'll say who it was. It was Bart Campolo, Tony Campolo's son, uh -huh. and and he at least at the time this was several years ago, so I don't know where he is today. But at the time, he was identifying as an atheist, and as he was giving the talk, it became increasingly obvious to me that the god he didn't believe in, I didn't believe in either. So, you know, so I, I think that's the question to ask an atheist is tell me about the God you don't believe in. Because, you know, it just might be that I don't believe in that God either. Right. Exactly. And so you know, back, back to your comment. Yeah. I want to invite you to the Q Christian Fellowship Conference on January 11th through the 14th, 2024 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. 
Are you LGBTQ and Christian, or are you an ally of the LGBTQ community and looking to learn how to better uplift the lives of LGBTQ individuals in faith-based spaces? This conference is an annual gathering where LGBTQ Christians, parents, and allies gather for worship, fellowship, workshops, and keynote speakers, making lifelong friendships, experiencing healing, transformation, and hope, and witnessing the fullness of God's love and affirmation through each other. This year's speakers include Miles Markham, Bishop Joseph William Tolton, Kathy Baldock, Britt Barron, and special guests Flamie Grant, Matthias Roberts, and many more presenters who are deeply committed to this work, including this podcast, A People's Theology, which will record a live episode that you can attend. Register today at qcfconf.org with the code A People's Theology, all caps, no spaces, for a 10% discount off your conference registration. Q Christian Fellowship, cultivating radical belonging for LGBTQ Christians and allies through a commitment to growth, community, and relational justice. I hope to see you there. Well, you just wrote a, you, well, you said like it was like 75,000 word book about Christian mysticism, you know, as, as succinctly as possible. What is Christian mysticism? <laughs> love is real. God is love. And God dwells in your heart. Beautiful. That's Christian mysticism. That's the first line in the new edition of the book. And then the other 400 pages are me attempting to begin <laughs> to unpack that. Because, the, you know, okay, well, let's, 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 let's geek out a little. So mysticism comes from the same root word in Greek that we get the word mystery from, but also we get the word mute from. So think of the mute button on your TV remote, mm -hmm. you know, or, or, you know, on online, you know, if you're doing zoom or whatever, you know, they, Oh, I can't hear you. You're muted. You yep, know, yep. I mean that. So, so mute is related to silence. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, in less kind of enlightened days, uh, somebody who did not have the capacity to speak was regarded as as a person who was mute. I mean, we that would be considered kind of disparaging today, but that was the language of the time. And um, you know, so 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 mute has this quality of silence, but also this quality of the lack of speech or the lack of discourse, if you will. So the mystery of mysticism is steeped in silence and steeped mm. in the cessation of, of discourse. So right away, you know, you, you, you see the method of my madness, because I begin by saying we got we to gotta understand mysticism in terms of theology. A lot of theologians would immediately howl in protest. You know, if you're saying that, that fundamentally language is inadequate and that to, to enter the door of mysticism, you need to shut up. Well, where does that leave me as a theologian? You know, right. I mean, think about it leaves, you, leaves them without a job is what it leaves them. <laughs> so, so obviously there's a paradox here. And paradox is something when you enter into the mystical funhouse, you bump into paradox almost at every corner. Mm -hmm. uh, and the paradox is that it, to enter into the mystery, we must be silent. And yet to share the mystery with one another, we must speak. It, it's 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 the human condition we have not mastered telepathy yet at mm. least i don't know anybody who has reliably mastered other than sure identical some people twins, maybe but yeah yeah, yeah they're, they're probably the closest you know and i know there are people running around saying well i've got you know and it's like yeah well let's let's you know sit down with you know and, and try to measure that but the, the reality is is that's how we communicate we communicate with symbols with language with stories with myth you know with doctrine um mm -hmm. and so it's um 
it's 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 just what we do. So the reality is, you know, when when people ask me about non-duality, I always like to talk about the North Pole, but I think it works here too. So if you're standing at the North Pole, every direction you look is south. But as soon as you take a step off of the North Pole, suddenly you have four directions. Mm. But you're no longer on the North Pole. It's the same thing with mysticism. You know, every direction you look is silent. You take one step out so that you can restore your language and try to give voice to what what you're experiencing or recognizing. Mm -hmm. But you're away from it. Talking about it separates us from it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so this is this is the paradox, the fundamental paradox of mystical writing. And I mean, when you think about the great mystics, we know about them because either they wrote or somebody wrote about them. Uh, Teresa of Avila wrote her Interior Castle, John of the Cross, Dark Knight of the Soul, uh, Julian Minorvich, The Revelations of Divine Love, the anonymous authors who wrote The Cloud of Unknowing or The Way of a Pilgrim. You know, the list goes on and on and on. 20th century figures that we've mentioned, Howard Thurman, Evelyn Underhill, um, uh, Merton. You could also uh, talk about Teilhard de Chardin or Simone Veil. You know, mm-hmm. there's all these amazing figures in our tradition who have done beautiful, poetic often philosophically nuanced writing, attempting to articulate what cannot ultimately be articulated. Mm. I'm glad they tried. You know, it seems to me that to write about, to write about the mystery is ultimately to fail. But was it G.K. Chesterton said, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly? You know, mm. so that's what mystics do, is they, they, they report about God poorly, mm-hmm. knowing that whatever, the words on a page will never ever capture the fullness mm-hmm. of, of the divine encounter. So it totally makes sense by mysticism starting with silence that mysticism and the apophatic tradition, for those that don't know the apophatic tradition is sort of this tradition of uh, recognizing that the, the less we say about God maybe is probably the best uh, way for us to understand God. Uh, and yeah. it totally makes sense why there's that connection there. Uh, you know, I don't want to equate, the apophatic tradition with the mysticism uh, tradition, but obviously there is some connection there. Uh, and and well, it also reminds me a lot of, again, the, this recognition that what we say about the divine, that it is going to be inadequate since we are finite creatures. And it, it reminds me a lot of the deconstruction, the like the philosophical tradition, you know, from like uh, Derrida and others, where they recognize that our language is inadequate to descri- like fully describe what we're trying to describe in language. We yeah. can't help but use language, right? We have to use yeah. language, but also yeah. recognizing that when we say words like justice or God, that those words themselves are not justice or God. They're just an attempt to describe the justice or God. Uh, and so anyway, I, I find that all really yeah. interesting that there's so many rich connections between these mystics that may have lived 500, 600, many, you know, centuries, maybe even millennia ago, and how we see those connections still in, in our world today. Yeah. And that, and that it's even considered cutting edge. I mean, yeah, Derrida referred to God as the transcendent signified. And I think a mystic would come back and say the transcendent that's also the imminent signified. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you, you mentioned apophatic and anybody who, who, who learns that theological category understands it, its sister category is cataphatic. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is, you know, is your discourse about God bereft of images or is it 
overflowing with images. And, and there are cataphatic mystics too. Uh, Julian of Norwich and Teresa of Avila are two excellent examples. Uh, I think Mirabai Starr often in her, her wonderful book, Wild Mercy, I can't recommend that book highly enough, uh, but I think she talks about how the feminine tradition within mysticism typically does tend to be more cataphatic. It's, it's more the, the, that kind of maybe philosophically austere uh, masculine tradition, the tradition of the cloud of unknowing of John of the Cross, of Gregory of Nyssa, um, again, you know, get into the way of a pilgrim and some of the Greek fathers that, that tend to reach that point of almost kind of like a world weariness and recognizing the language does, it fails us so much that really all that's left is silence. But I think the cataphatic tradition is kind of a healthy corrective to that because mm -hmm. it's it's the tradition. And Ignatius of Loyola, who again was, was a guy as best as anybody knows, was also falls in that cataphatic tradition. This idea of, you know, what we see is what we've got. And that, you know, if we can't find God in, you know, in the hungry person that we're helping or in the baby that we're cooing at, you know, mm -hmm. or the dying person that we're holding their hand, you know, if we can't find God here, then where are we going to find God? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so I think there's, there's almost this, this in, again, paradox, you know, this, you know, God is not just in the heart of the person that you are loving. And yet God is totally in the heart of the person you are loving. So it's not pantheism. You know, the mystics have always been accused of being pantheists. Pantheism is kind of a, an erasing of the paradox between creator and creation. Mm -hmm. And um, and so, you know, the, the term I think um, von Hugel uh, coined it about 100, 125 years ago, this concept of panentheism, mm -hmm. this idea that, you know, yeah, God, God is not equated with all things, but yet God is present in all things. There's this mm -hmm. resonant presence. But again, we cannot put it into words. But, but there mm -hmm. is this a, a metaphor I continually use is this metaphor of hide and seek, that God plays hide and seek with us. And so where is God hiding? You know, when, when children play hide and seek, they hide behind a bush, you know, they hide behind a trash can or whatever. God is hiding in the hungry person. God is hiding in the, mm. the spouse you just had a fight with. God is hiding in the beautiful sunset. God is hiding in the litter box that you have to clean out, you know, mm -hmm. because the cats just keep on pooping. God mm -hmm. is in all of the above. And so, um, and, and yet the apophatic, this tradition that says our language cannot contain God, uh, Images cannot contain God. I mean, if you think about it, the Protestant Reformation was kind of an apophatic movement. You know, let's tear down all the icons. Let's tear down all the statues, mm -hmm. you know. And, you know, I mean, even to this day, I live in, I live in the American South. You know, you go to a, a beautiful old Southern Baptist church, and it is austere. Go into a, a 19th century Catholic church. We do have a few down here in the South. And it is just, it's, it's an artistic overwhelm. You know, mm -hmm. and so right there, you see the apophatic and the cataphatic architecturally embedded. Yeah. So, um, you know, so this idea that, you know, is God more present in a Baptist church than a Catholic church? Well, certainly some Baptists would say so. But then is God more present in the Catholic? Or how about God is simply present? And these are two different strategies mm -hmm. that, that we adopt for trying to, to find the God who's playing hide and seek with us. Yeah. The sort of paradox in the mystical tradition around uh, this cataphatic and apophatic, uh, you know, those two traditions that we see in the mystical tradition, it also reminds me of 
the the experiences themselves, the mystical experiences themselves, often seem to find their way into one of those two uh, traditions. You know, sometimes when we hear about the the mystics, there's these amazing like overwhelming experiences that we sometimes hear described, you know, and some of these mystics are doing sort of unbelievable, you know, like I forget, I always forget which uh, uh, woman mystic it was, but there's a woman mystic that like would essentially almost like starve herself to like have these grand experiences with the divine. And then you have some mystics, they're almost like on the complete opposite of that, where like their mystical experiences are very unassuming. They may be even having like a mystical experience in the moment and you don't even know it, right? And so you get a little bit of both, which I find really fascinating. Uh, I don't know if you have uh, to have much to say around that but I, i'm curious what your thoughts are around the fact that there seems to be these very different kinds of mystical experiences some that seem to be very grand uh and then there's some that seem to be very unassuming I, i'm not sure who said it first i've seen it attributed to at least two different writers two different catholic writers but and it's interesting one's a carmelite and one's a benedictine so coming out of the the, the contemplative tradition in both cases but the line goes like this, a mystic is not a special kind of person. Each person is a special kind of mystic. Mm-hmm. A, a mystic is not a special kind of person. Each person is a special kind of mystic. And so what that then, of course, begs the question is, well, you know, I'm nothing like Teresa of Avila. You know, I'm nothing like Julian of Norwich having 16 visions on my deathbed, you know, or Thomas Merton just suddenly falling in love with everybody because they all were shining like the sun. I mean, you, you know, these, these amazing stories that people do recount. Uh, Carol Hauslander, who saw an icon of Christ, a Russian icon of Christ above the sky, and then found out later that day it was the day that the czar had been assassinated. You know, these interesting kind of stories that people tell. But then you've got Teresa Lisieux, also a Carmelite, Carmelite nun, you know, who dies when she's in her 20s from tuberculosis. But, but her, her, her uh, diary gets published afterwards and becomes just this kind of classic of 19th century spirituality called The Story of a Soul. And her whole thing is, you know, can I just do little things for, for Christ? You know, I'm not a great mystic like Teresa of Avila or anyone like that, but, but I, love, I love God and I want to live a life that is, you know, kind of immersed in and emerging from that love. And so who says that she can't be every bit as great a mystic as Teresa of Avila, mm. but just in her own way, you know? So Teresa had the great visions, the grand visions, the angel with the spear and all that stuff. Therese, named after Teresa, Therese just simply tries to love people and tries to be kind and compassionate and, and, and pray for those in need, you know, the simple, simple little things. And, um, and so I think, you know, the analogy I like to use, I love musical metaphors. So, and I, you know, I, I am a child of the prog rock era. You know, I grew up listening to, you know, guitarists like Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton, Steve Howe, you know, these, uh, these amazing, amazing, you know, virtuosos of the guitar. I have tried to play the guitar. I I know maybe two chords. <laughs> you know, hey, that's enough to play some worship music. That's all you need to some know. Some basics, some basic stuff. Okay, there you go. But um, but the you know, and my wife is 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 a nice guitarist, so she would say nothing fancy. And we have, of course, a number of friends who play the guitar. But they they, they have, with only one or two exceptions, they've never recorded. They've never been a professional musician. What if we said that the only way you could play the guitar is if you're as good as Eric Clapton or as good as Jimmy Page? Mm. How, 
how much great music would be lost well that or you know? i mean we wouldn't we wouldn't have a new eric clapton or Jimi hendrix right if if nobody thought they could you know ever get to that level because no one obviously no one ever starts out that good right yeah you know and so the reality is that yes you know there it's like every generation god seems to raise up a few people who are kind of like these mystical virtuosos and in their language their poetry their stories their recounting of their own experiences their theological reflection they inspire the rest of us mm. and then the rest of us we still can play the guitar. We still can make music, you know, after dinner, you know, Hey, bring out the guitar. Let's sing a few songs, you know, that kind of thing. And the world would just be a, a less happy place, less joyful place. If that went away. And I think that's the reality of the mystical life is some of us, a very small number of us are called to be Eric Clapton's mm -hmm. and many, many, many of us are called to be like that, you know, kid around the campfire. With, mm -hmm. with their, you know, little, you know, that when I was coming up is the guitar you got from Sears. I don't know what they call right. entry level guitars nowadays, but, but it used to be, you could order in the Sears catalog, this good, you know, and you hear, you know, they not Clapton because he was in England, but these really, you know, accomplished guitarists and they're like, yeah, I learned on a Sears guitar, mm -hmm. you know, that my mom and dad bought for me when I was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, isn't that wonderful? And so, so yeah, you know, it's like, okay. So another thing about mystics. So, okay, doctors heal, lawyers litigate, business persons sell, um, musicians make music, artists paint, mystics pray. What mm. do mystics do? Mystics pray. You know, the virtuosity of the, of the mystical life is a virtuosity of prayer. And mm. so, um, you know, and the ability to talk about, you know, the theological reflection, to talk about not only your image of God, but then also your image of yourself. Who am I, you know, who am I that you created me? You know, the Psalm 8, that's a, that's a, a, a contemplative question. You know, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be in relationship with the infinite mystery? Mm -hmm. to, to insist both from the authority of my own experience, but also from the best teachings of the tradition, that this mystery is infinite compassion and infinite love and infinite justice and cause us to health and cause us to healing and cause us to relationship and community. In prayer, we begin to answer those questions. And so, um, you know, so, so you, you know, you think about, yeah, the Eric Clapton's of the world. I mean, I heard an interview with him once and he said, yeah, you know, I got a guitar and it's like my social life went out the window. You know, I stayed at home and played the guitar for 12 hours a day. And, um, you know, did that for six or seven years. And then finally, I was good enough to, to, you know, go play, join a band and play. And then, of course, you know, obviously he was gifted eventually, you know, he's Eric Clapton. But the, um, you know, so, so there are some mystics who it's like they just naturally immerse their lives into prayer. Mm -hmm. But I think all of us are called to make our lives prayerful lives. Mm -hmm. It will look different for every one of us. You know, somebody who you know, their career is, let's say, you know, like a brain surgeon, you know, they need to be absolutely present to what they're doing, you know. So they're saying their prayer maybe in the morning or in the evening, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of thing, or maybe a quick little prayer, God be with me as I, as I seek to, to serve this person who, who needs my care, you know. But they're not going to be in perpetual prayer the way a meditating monk is. Mm -hmm. or at least the quality of their prayer will be different. But that doesn't make it any less 
valid in God's eyes, any less of an expression of love or an expression of compassion or care. And so for my money, that doesn't make it any less mystical. Mm -hmm. You know, we all are capable of touching the silence in some way, shape or form. And we are all capable of opening our hearts to a sense of wonder and a sense of possibility and to trust that the spirit, you know, I mean, scripture is very explicit. The Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts. I mean, that's Romans 5, 5. It doesn't mm -hmm. get more plain than that. The Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts. So the question is, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to kind of turn our hearts over and allow that indwelling spirit to transform us slowly from within? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that the mystical, if you want to call it an experiment, the mystical experiment dares to say, yes, I want mm. to open my heart to that indwelling spirit, and I want to see where it's going to take me. Mm. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry, but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. Earlier, we were talking about Thurman, and you mentioned, you know, this great quote where, you know, Thurman kind of talks a little bit about, you know, the mystic kind of has this uh, interesting relationship with the uh, with the institution. and. Yeah. You know, we've already mentioned a little bit about some of the names that you've kind of thrown out throughout, you know, the great history of Christian mysticism. And it seems as if, I could be wrong, I'm not a scholar of Christian mysticism, but it seems as if the Christian mystics have had a complicated relationship with church authority and the church institution. Uh, why is it that you think so many church institutions and authorities throughout history have found mysticism to even be dangerous? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I was reading something just online this morning. Um, it was a, a young woman. She's, a, you know, she's working on her PhD right now, uh, trying to make the case that reformed theology is not hostile to mysticism. And of course, she's quoting all these authors who imply that it is. You know, and so it's, it, I, I can tell you, you know, again, back to my, my charismatic you know, experience in, in high school, I remember this guy saying, it's funny, we're still Facebook friends, um, although not very close, but still saying, you know, mysticism begins in mist, it ends in schism, and it has I, not God, but I in the middle. There's this kind of, you know, this kind of, I don't know, you know, like a meme. I mean, obviously, this is years before social media, but kind of this oral meme that gets passed around. And so, yeah, you know, there is a real suspicion. And I think 
I, I, I can only speak for the West. I, I really am, you know, I'm not a scholar of Orthodox spirituality. I mean, obviously I've read a fair amount, but I'm, I'm certainly no, don't claim to be a scholar in any way. But in the East, in the West, we have the reality of the, of the Reformation. And, you know, even though I'm Roman Catholic, I do think the Reformation was something that needed to happen. The Catholic Church had really gone off the rails at that point, and it probably just wasn't capable of reforming itself from within. Although it's certainly, you know, once Luther lit the match, you know, they convened the Council of Trent and, and mm -hmm. good things, but also bad things came out of the Council. But that's a story for a different day. But, but the, um, you know, but like any conflict, there, there's casualties, and and mysticism was one of the casualties of the Reformation, mm -hmm. and and the here here's how I understand, and this is super simplified, okay, but um, just for the sake of us having a, a conversation, Protestant Protestant theology is really built on sola scriptura, you know, mm -hmm. the idea that the Bible is the absolute and final authority for for all things pertaining to doctrine and morals and and the life of faith. The Catholic response to that is no, the church is the final authority, you know, obviously invested in the Pope, but also invested in the teaching authority of the bishops. And so, um, so it's like in the Catholic world, it's almost like the Dr. Seuss story where some of the creatures had stars on their bellies and some of them didn't. It's like in the Catholic world, the Bible gets its authority from the church. And then the Protestant world, the church gets its authority from the Bible. Mm. And so we're kind of at the point where we're arguing in circles. And now along come the mystics and the mystics are saying, well, what about the authority of my own experience? Mm. Mm -hmm. And it's like, neither side wanted to hear that, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And so the, because the reality is, is that the mystics, I mean, really as best I can tell all the way back to the early centuries, the mystics have always skirted on the edge of orthodoxy. The, you know that there are. It's funny. I did. I did a, a similar interview, like like when the one you and I are having recently, with somebody who's very much interested in esoteric, you know, esoteric mm. history and esoteric spirituality. And so he was really pressing me. He was saying, "Why didn't you? Why don't you talk about the Gnostics? Why don't you talk about the Cathars? Why don't you? You know, and I, kind of all these heretical, you know, the Rosicrucians, all these kind of heretical movements." And I finally had to say, "Listen." I'm writing this book for people who are working within the mainstream of Christian orthodoxy. And people who aren't working within the mainstream might think I'm being kind of timid. But for people who are in the mainstream, obviously their, their perspective is shaped by the Bible. It's shaped by church history. It's shaped by, by, by doctrine. You know? And so there have been mystics, like the, some of the ones I've just mentioned, that fall beyond the pale of mm -hmm. what is generally considered orthodox christianity but there are also mystics who have become you know howard thurman is a great example have become really lauded as as you know in the catholic world we would say saints maybe in the reformed world you'd say you know heroes of the faith or you know great teachers mm -hmm. or you know or are still using the word saint in an informal way so you know so there are mystics who who get rejected as heretics. They're mystics who get lauded as saints and they're the ones in the middle. But what I think all three categories have in common is they do tend to dance on that edge mm -hmm. of the authority structure because historically the institution has to place authority in something that is, is kind of external, whether mm -hmm. it's, it's the actual institution itself, which is what the Catholics have done, or whether it's the, the body of sacred writings which is what the reform tradition does. 
and so it's um you know the the, the christian mystics who are generally accepted to be orthodox christians and I, I mean that in the small O sense, not Eastern Orthodox, but just Orthodox within the larger community of faith, are typically the mystics who report their own experiences, but then really work at how their experience is consistent with what they understand kind of Christian teaching to be. So you see right. that with Teresa of Avila, with John of the Cross, you know, but, um, but the reality is they're still offering new ways of thinking, new ways of looking, new ways of talking about God. So, mm -hmm. so they're always dancing this dance. And I mean, you know, Ignatius of Loyola, Teresa of Avila, you know, they, they, they had their issues with the Inquisition. It was certainly, it was, they didn't have a free ride. We're seeing this with Merton right now. There are a lot of conservative Catholics who just cannot stand Merton. Mm -hmm. You know, it'd be kind of fun to, you know, get a sneak peek into 300 years from now, whether Merton will be regarded as a heretic or maybe as a saint or maybe still as just somebody who lived on the edges, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was this devout Trappist monk who also, you know, I mean, he said right before he died, he said, I want to be the best Buddhist I can be. Mm -hmm. you know, a Christian like me, that it just opens up doors and possibility. But there are a lot of Christians that freaks them out. Mm -hmm. You know, how can you, how can you be a student of Buddhism? You know, and again, Merton is, is, he's, he's being faithful to the authority of his own experience. He's like, when I pray and when I sit down and do Zen, they're, they're, they're supporting each other. And so, but you have to experience that before you can go there. And obviously, you know, the, I mean, the shadow side of having external authority is that you, you create bureaucracy and you also can, can instill fear, you know, mm -hmm. and so many, I mean, I, I have a very dear friend. I've known for years. I just love her to pieces. But, you know, she thinks I'm just on the fast track to, you know, perdition because I practice yoga and I study with, you know, Buddhists and I meditate and all that. You know, in her mind, you know, that stuff, then you belong to the devil. I mean, that's mm -hmm. really how she, that's her story. Mm -hmm. That's her story. And um, it's, you know, and of course, what it has meant is that we don't have a very authentic relationship because I just, there's, there's whole segments of my life I just can't talk about with her. Mm -hmm. Because it upsets her too much. And I'm, I'm not interested in upsetting her. You know, I don't want to have a fight. But, but in, until she deconstructs her story of God, there's not going to be room for my story of God in, mm -hmm. in, in our relationship. So, you know, so this is part of, I think that's what, you know, to, to use that as an analogy, I think mystics are always trying to expand the story of God. Mm -hmm. And maybe the institution or the hierarchy or church leadership, the conference ministers, whatever you want to say they're running an institution they're trying to keep mm -hmm. the business going they got they got to pay the light bills you know they don't have time to worry about expanding your image of god they mm -hmm. they want to they want to see the butts in the pews on sunday morning i know that's vulgar but right. frankly it's that's it, you know the institution has to pay the bills and so mm -hmm. so there is a fundamental tension there mm -hmm. and so uh, so mystics i think historically have danced that tension so yeah it seems like throughout history christian mystics have always been the troublemakers of christianity uh, or at least more often than not have been the troublemakers of christianity and 
Th- that actually reminds me a lot of the the listeners that uh, of this podcast generally are people who grew up in the evangelical tradition and have since sure. left that tradition. Maybe some of them have remained Christian. Maybe some of them have left Christianity altogether, uh, but are nonetheless very interested in probably thinking through or learning about the mystics. And I- I'm curious what you think. I-, I don't know what your experience is with people who are, quote unquote, like deconstructing their faith or leaving evangelicalism or leaving conservative Christianity. But can I, I would imagine maybe to some degree, especially as a spiritual director, you've worked with some level oh, yeah. uh, of people oh, that yeah. have have that experience. W- what would you uh, like? What would you say mysticism offers to people that are deconstructing their faith or leaving conservative religious environments? You know, first of all, I would I would say that I think it can take a lot of courage to deconstruct your faith and especially uh, moving out of a conservative environment, uh, especially when your family is involved, you know? So it's, uh, so first of all, I just want to acknowledge the incredible courage that it takes to do that kind of thing. I would say that, okay, this just comes to mind. I I knew a man once he was a Bishop in the Episcopal church and, and, and I was taking a class with him and it was interesting. I don't know. It wasn't even, the class wasn't even on marital counseling, but he, he, he brings it up. He was trying to illustrate a point. And he said, you know, sometimes when couples would come in for marital counseling and we talk for a half an hour and I might have to ask them and I'd say, are you here for marital counseling or are you here for divorce counseling? Mm. And, and, and he didn't mean that with, with judgment because, hey, we live in a world where marriages break down. And the reality is, is if your marriage is breaking down, let me counsel you that we can try to do this in as, you know, in as compassionate and as caring a manner as possible. So it's like there's good and bad ways to get a divorce. If your marriage is troubled and you want to save the marriage, that's a different strategy of counseling. So I, mm-hmm. I hope that analogy makes sense. So I think that when you're deconstructing your faith, that's kind of the first question you have to ask is, do I want to save this marriage or do I really want to let it go? Mm-hmm. And, um, and my book is probably going to be more helpful to the persons who aren't quite ready to take it out in the back and shoot it, you know, that they, <laughs> that they still want to have some sort of relationship with the Christian tradition. It may not involve church. Or, or, you know, that it, it may involve, you know, community that's found online, you know, or I don't know, you know, just, you know, going out and hanging out with, with, with other people who have had the door slammed in their face and saying, you know, how does God show up in your life? You know, and that's community. I, you know, I think the reality is that, well, we, we kind of was touching on this earlier when we we're talking about the atheist, you know, I, I think everybody, even the most conservative person, everybody is continuing. If you're, if you're drawing breath, if your mind is functioning, you're continually honing your story. Mm. Some people probably do that very slowly and only make very minor tweaks. But others, you know, their world gets rocked. And I, I give you an example, a very dear friend of mine, a colleague of mine in, in the Atlanta spiritual direction community, Faithful Roman Catholic, never misses a Sunday mass. Guess what? Her son comes out to her. You know, she mm. has a gay son. And she's like, hmm, I don't, I realized I don't know very much about, you know, homosexuality, same-sex love. And so she, you know, she took it upon herself. And she read some books, visited some websites, did a lot of, you know, learning, saw the kind of hostility towards queer people in, in the Catholic world. She goes to her priest. And she says to her priest, 
don't you dare make me choose between the church and my son. Mm. And I'll tell you right now that if you do, I'm choosing my son. And that, and I don't know who the priest was, but to his credit, he said, I would never ask you to make that choice. Mm. 10, however many years later, she is now the director of the ministry in the Catholic Archdiocese of Atlanta that basically works with the family and friends of gay Catholics. And it's, and it's an affirming ministry. I mean, there are ministries out there like, yes, you should be celibate. That's not this ministry. This is a ministry mm. that says yes wow. to love. You know, and so, you know, and I can tell you this woman would never, I don't think, not have to ask her, she, I don't think she would ever say I'm a mystic. And yet, clearly, she has such a strong relationship with, with, with God as she has experienced and understood God mm. that she had the strength to literally go and be very vulnerable before an institution that hasn't had a very good track record. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and has actually been able to create some positive change, obviously on a small level, but still. So deconstructing our faith can mean many, many, many different things. You know, you, you said, you asked me about my, my ministry. And of course, I have to protect people's confidentiality. But, you know, I mean, I work with people who are clergy, you know, people who are getting paid by mm -hmm. the church. And they're on a deconstruction journey. Wow, that's very, very interesting. And of course, maybe the right answer is to say, you know, I'm done with ministry. You know, I'm going to go mm -hmm. teach college or go become a therapist or go start a business or whatever. That's legit. But then it might also be, ah, I see enough of value in ministry that I just have to totally, totally write a new story mm -hmm. about what this means and about what, how I show up and how I'm present with other people. And that's equally legit. But each person has to decide for themselves. You know? mm -hmm. Here's an analogy that I, that I like to use. I, I, everybody knows, and I, I know you know this, everybody knows, everybody who's honest knows that institutional Christianity is just in full throttle crisis right now. Mm -hmm. um, I think I heard recently that the Episcopal Church, just to use one example, in the last 10 or 20 years, the Episcopal Church has shrunk by 44%. I mean, that's mm -hmm. almost half. It's like it's, it's just barely more than half of what it was a generation ago. At that rate, will there even be an Episcopal Church a few mm -hmm. generations from now? And I think Anglican Christianity is beautiful. I, it would break my heart to see it just wither away. But that's the, the reality. The church is in crisis. And it's across the board. And it used to be the conservative churches were growing and the liberal churches were shrinking. Not true It's anymore. all shrinking. Now that, yeah, now they all are. So, 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 you know, so here, here's the analogy. The church is like a burning building. You know, dumpster, dumpster fire. The church is a dumpster fire. People like you and me, and I assume the people listening to this podcast who are really taking responsibility for having an adult faith or an adult relationship to the faith, we are like firefighters. And the question is, number one, do we want to go into the building? And if we're going into the building, why? Are we there to try to save the people that are trapped inside it, help them to get out of the building? Or do we think the building is worth saving and we're going to try mm -hmm. to put out the fire and preserve the building. Different people will answer that question in different ways. Who am I to say that there's only one right answer? I respect people who think, you know, the institution is worth saving. But I think it's like, you know, it's like Notre Dame. You know, when Notre Dame burned, it's, it's, it will be a new church. It will not be 
what it was before. I'm glad I saw mm-hmm. it before the fire, you know, because it, 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 that's just a, that that will be an epical moment in the life of that church. The same thing. I think what, you know, Phyllis Tickles, God rest her soul, said that we are basically due for another reformation. And I think she mm-hmm. was right. And I think we are seeing the beginning of it right now mm-hmm. in our lifetimes. And um, f- for some of us, it's like, you know, there's so much that's of value there. I, I want to preserve what's of value, even as I, as I, you know, let go of what no longer serves. I, I can really respect that, but I equally can respect those who say, I, for my own health, as well as the people I love, I have to get as far away as possible. Mm-hmm. Now, can the mystics help the people who say, look, I, I need a divorce from the church? I think that, again, it's a personal thing because you can get divorced from the church and still want to cultivate a relationship with God, a spiritual life. And if, if you want that, even away from the church, the mystics could be wonderful allies. When, mm-hmm. you know. Now, you have to read the mystics with discernment because, again, so many of them, they're writing centuries ago. Uh, you know, they often use the language of, you know, the language of sin and redemption, the language of reward and punishment. It's what, what I would call dualistic language. Yes, mysticism takes us to non-duality, but we have to go through a whole lot of duality to get there. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so most, in fact, I mean, back to the silence and speech analogy, you could argue that that language is inherently dualistic. And so even the most gifted mystic in their writings, they will be speaking dualistically. And so, so we have to read them with discernment, just like you have to read anything else. So, mm-hmm. so can the mystics support the people who are, are asking or getting a divorce Yes, if they want to do that kind of work. But I think they can be especially valuable for the ones who maybe are deconstructing their faith and looking for a way to reconstruct it that maybe is based a little bit more on compassion and a little bit less on reward and punishment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that last group of people is certainly has been my experience. And uh, I would imagine a lot of people listening to this podcast are probably in that group of folks as well. So yeah, Christian mysticism has certainly uh, been, especially just the mystics themselves, not, not only just my personal experiences, but but also just reading other mystics has, has been certainly, uh, I felt a sort of uh, accompaniment in my deconstructing story uh, because of their own stories as well. So uh, I, I find the mystics really, really important and helpful in that way. Uh, last question, Carl, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? Yes. Um, well, obviously the books, you know, which you can find wherever, you know, good books are sold. The, um, my blog is onamkara.com and that's A-N-A-M as in Mary. So N as in Nancy, M as in Mary. A-N-A-M-C-H-A-R-A.com. It's a Gaelic word that means soul friend. And my podcast, which has been on hiatus for the last few months, but I know we, we do intend to, to bring a few more episodes out, but it's called Encountering Silence. And so you can find all the old, ep- I mean, we interviewed people like Richard Rohr, Cynthia Bergeau, Martin Laird, you know, uh, Jim Finley, a lot of, and they, Barbara Holmes, uh, Loretta Coleman Brown, a lot of amazing contemporary contemplatives uh, have been interviewed on that podcast. So, so that would be the main thing. And um, yeah, you know, so Anamkara, Encountering Silence, and then the books. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Carl, for chatting more about Christian mysticism. Again, I don't think this topic really has been explored so much on this podcast. So thank you so much for chatting more about it. And uh, certainly the book is great and probably one of the best intros I've I've read uh, in terms of Christian mysticism. So thank you so much for writing it and chatting more about it. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you, Mason.
can get connected with Carl and his work in the links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meniga. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.